0: I'm just going to dive right in. So we're in Exodus chapter 16. All right? Um, so I'm just going to dive right in. Uh, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. So... Last week when Steve left off, right, the Israelites had had come out of Egypt, they had crossed the Red Sea, and they had sung, the whole chapter 15 was this this, uh, horse and rider song that they sang in victory. Um, And we learned that Elam, at the very, very end of chapter 15, it says Elam was uh, an oasis, right? It was a place of, it said it had 70 palm trees and and, uh, 12 springs. It was an easy place for people to live. Uh, It was, uh, there's a lot of comfort and a lot of goodness there, and God called them out of Elam. He called them to go from there and to go towards Mount Sinai. But between Elam and Sinai, there's this wilderness of sin that they have to uh, cross. And I know you might think, ooh, that's a symbolic description. I get it, the wilderness of sin. Um, I know what that's all about. I could probably preach a whole sermon just about that. Brothers and sisters, as you sit there in your pews tonight, are you in the wilderness of sin? Actually, that's not what the Hebrew word means. It uh, doesn't have anything to do with sin. As a matter of fact, you could uh, switch that S out for a Z. It would be the wilderness of Zin would be equally acceptable. Uh, another thing you're going to notice is that I got off the hook today. I met a pastor. Unbeknownst, I met a pastor today, and he asked me if I was preaching or teaching tonight. And I realized I was off the hook. If I was preaching, like Jeremy or Steve, I'd have to be over here and making big arm movements and doing stuff. But because I'm teaching tonight, I get to stay here with my notes. <laughs> So verse 2, In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Not so long ago, we saw that the Children of Israel crossed over the Red Sea, right? They came over to the other side. They had a tremendous victory over the Egyptians they, who had enslaved them for hundreds of years. They saw the, 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 the bodies of their captors washed up on the shore of the Red Sea. But we also saw this. They came out singing, right? They came out worshiping God. They were singing songs of gratitude and glorification to God. That's all well and good, right? But uh, we see what happens as soon as verse 2 comes around. They, they were singing. Then we get to the wilderness. Now not so much with the singing anymore. What a fascinating psychological study verse two and three are about the heart that finds it so easy to complain. But I want you to know something about the complaints. They're not just out of the blue. They're not completely divorced from reality, right? I mean, the the connection was they actually did need food, okay? By, uh, it says they're on the 15th day of the second month. So they're about 30 days outside of Egypt at this point. Okay, They've been on this trip for about 30 days. And I imagine that by about this time, their supplies that they brought out of Egypt are probably running out. Um, uh, Exodus 12:39 tells us, they baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread, for it had not yet become leavened, since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. So, They'd used up all the bread that they brought with them, and now they're looking ahead at this wilderness, and they're worried about the provision of food, like what are we going to eat tomorrow, next month, next year? Where's this food going to come from? There's no restaurants. There's no grocery stores. There's no obvious provision. What are we going to do? Uh, Remember also the Israelites had brought out of Egypt with them. It says they brought out great wealth and precious metals when they left Egypt, right? So they had plenty of money, but you know what? You can't eat money. I suspect that their complaining, though, about the food was based more on an anticipation of hunger than it was actual hunger. I think they're not starving yet, not right then and there. They're thinking we're going to starve, right? Aren't we like that sometimes? We get more worked up and worried and agitated and wrapped around the axle about the thing that we're worried that's going to happen than we are then when it actually happens, Right? I'll, I'll tell you for myself, for two weeks since they've been telling me I'm going to preach the sermon, I've been like wrapped up and, you know, two minutes in, I'm doing pretty good so far. <laughs> no, I've, don't worry, I have plenty of time to screw this up. Um, so they're thinking, we're going to starve. What are you going to do for us, Moses? And they complained against Moses and Aaron. We had, and they said, we had all this we had all this food in Egypt. We had everything we needed in Egypt. You see what they're doing there? They're distorting the truth about their past. Now you know, and I know, and they should have known, but they conveniently forgot that for hundreds of years they lived as wretched slaves in Egypt, right? They had the snap of the whip and the lash across their backs, and they were forced to work without pay, and they were treated like animals, and they were fed with scraps, and now they're looking back on those nostalgic days and saying, oh, wasn't it great back there in Egypt? Isn't it amazing how our minds do this? Right. Sometimes we look back at the past and we have that rose-colored filter, that creative memory, that selective memory in our heads that can make the past seem so much worse. Sometimes we remember things better than they were, but a lot of times we remember things um, uh, worse than they were. But they conveniently omitted, when they're having this recollection about the severe toils that they had every day, but the misery of being slaves, the murder of their children by one tyrant, had being asked to make bricks without straw by another tyrant, their requirement, the indignities to which they were daily exposed, and the blows that were hourly showered upon them. They also admitted equally to consider what they had gained by quitting Egypt, the consciousness of freedom, the, the full liberty of finally worshiping Jehovah God, after their conscience, the constant companionship of their families, the perpetual evidence of God's presence there with them in the pillar of smoke and in the pillar of fire, which accompanied them. And so I want to ask you, what is your Egypt today? Uh, Us old-timers, Steve, forgive me, I'm going to call myself an old-timer, right? We like to talk about the good old days. Oh, Remember the good old days, right? I mean, let's be honest, for my dad, the good old days meant polio, measles, Mumps, Nixon, Vietnam, <laughs> 70s fashion, bell bottoms, fringe jackets, oh, 70s interior design, shag carpeting, conversation pits, wood paneling, and the unholy trinity, harvest gold, burnt orange, and avocado. <laughs> And for my dad's dad, the good old days was the Great Depression and, World War, and the First World War. And for his, for his dad, the good old days was the Civil War. And for his dad, the Revolutionary War. And you go back 500 years, and the good old days was the, the Black Plague. Right? Seriously, though, what, what is your Egypt today? What part of your previous life are you looking back on longingly? That was actually really terrible. Do you ever look back at your previous life before you got saved? With just a little bit of longing. You ever think, ah, oh, I'm super glad that I'm clean and sober. I'm not, I am. Man, I had a lot of fun drinking, though. I had a lot of fun drinking. I'm glad that I'm off the drugs. But, boy, seeing the Grateful Dead when I was on acid was sick. Right? I, I love my wife. She's great. Godly woman, Steve. She's, she's fantastic. I love her. She's perfect. But between you and me, I used to date this chick named Sandra. <laughs> Do you ever do that? Is there any part of your previous life? Have you ever looked back fondly at your slavery? Sometimes it's a gift to be able to see the past correctly. Clearly, without any distortion. Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Even more surprising to me, even more incomprehensible to me than the Israelites complaining is God's response to it. It is astonishing to me that on this occasion, there is not on God's part a single severe word of reproof on the people's murmurings, much less any punishment for it. Contrast this with later, right? 1 Corinthians 1.10, where it says, some of them also murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. The appearance of God in the cloud and in the fire, it warned them, it awed them, but it did not injure them. What did he do instead? He did three things. Number one, he pitied them. He realized that they really were in great need. He looked to their need more to... Th- than to their murmurings. Number two, he was forbearing with them in the beginning of their way. Later, later when the Israelites had been much longer under God's training, okay, they were severely punished uh, for similar complainings. Uh, see uh, Numbers twenty-one five. But in the preliminary stages of their journey, in their wilderness education with God, God made large and merciful allowances for them. He knew how novel and trying these situations that he was putting in them were going to be. He took their need as a starting point and sought to educate them out of their murmuring disposition. Shouldn't we be the same? Let's be graceful. Let's be gracious to new Christians who are just starting their journeys. Jeremy's talked about this so many times from the pulpit, right? Um, You got to understand, I grew up in a very strict fundamentalist, Bible-thumping, Bible-believing church. And in that church, if some tattooed, long-haired, smoking biker had somehow managed to wander through the doors of that church and gotten himself saved, because certainly we weren't going out and finding people like that in my church, we were not, but if he had somehow miraculously stumbled in and gotten saved, the next week they would have expected him to be in church in a three-piece suit with his hair cut, no smoking, no cursing, Overnight sanctification. Wouldn't that be nice? And if he wasn't, well, then maybe he just wasn't really saved in the first place. Let's not be like that. Let's let God work on people's hearts in his time, not ours. Mm -hmm. And number three, the verse says that he purposed to prove them, to test them. It says, in this way, I will test them. Does that mean Uh, to to prove them? Ah. Proof. There's uh, an old, back when they used to make armor, they would test the armor. Guys would make plate mail armor, right? And then they would test it by smacking it with something. And if it survived, then it was, it smacked it with a sword, and it was sword-proof armor. If they whacked it with an axe, then it was axe-proof armor. They shot it with an arrow, it was arrow-proof armor. Uh... Sometimes you'll see in museums, there'll be an armor plate and there'll be a little ding or a little dent right there. That's what it is. That's what it's from. It's from, from they would shoot an arrow or crossbow from certain distances and that was like single-proof or double-proof armor. Matter of fact, uh, if you ever saw The Last Samurai, the Japanese continued using metal armor all the way up until the advent of gunpowder and, and firearms. And that's where you get the term bulletproof from. That's what proof means, right? Why would you risk putting a hole in that armor to prove to somebody, that it's worthy. We'll talk, and I'm going to talk more about that proving process later, okay? But I just want you to see what God is saying here. It is absolutely and utterly incredible to me. Think about it. You're hungry, and God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to rain down bread from heaven. Isn't that crazy? Does God normally provide for our needs that way? Oh, Lord, I really need this. Okay, I will drop it out of the sky for you right there. Right? You need bread? Boom! There's your there's your bread from heaven. God, I need money. Pennies from heaven. Right? God, I'm a single woman. It's raining, men. Hallelujah! It's raining, men. He doesn't. So to make any sense of this passage, you have to understand something that you might not understand. That you might not know. This is very esoteric. Bread doesn't normally fall from heaven. Okay? In other words, this was a completely novel, unexpected way that God was going to provide for their need. Later on, Israel calls this bread from heaven uh, a different name. What the, you know, do where, where they call it? Manna, manna right? But I want, I want you to know something. It's interesting. God almost never calls it manna. God usually calls it bread from heaven. You can see that in Nehemiah 9, Psalm 78, Psalm 105 calls it bread from heaven. Um, One time in Psalm 78, he actually calls it angel's food. Um, I'm not sure if that's what angels actually eat, or maybe it tasted like angel's food cake. Uh, I don't know exactly. Actually, in a couple minutes, a little teaser trailer here. Actually, in a couple minutes, I'm going to reveal to you exactly what manna tasted like. And you're not going to believe it. I'll tell you right now, you're shocked. Verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against them. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Okay? Moses and Aaron, guys, were not to blame for the situation in which the Israelites found themselves, okay? They had done nothing but obey God from the first to the last. God had commanded the Exodus. God had led the way. God had forbidden them to take the short route over to the Philistines' land and said, we're going to go along the wilderness of the Red Sea. Moses and Aaron were just his mouthpieces, yet the Israelites murmured against them. Truly, it was that Moses responded, why, who are we? that you're murmuring against us. Your murmurings are not against us, but against God. So are all murmurings, okay? You want to murmur against Trump? He's God's, he's, put in, he's, he's in his place because of God. You want to murmur against Biden? He's there because God put him there, okay? And whatever difficulty we find himself, all men are but God's instruments, mm-hmm. okay? It's God who has placed us in our situations. So murmuring against men is foolish. We should take our grief straight to God, Okay, we should address him not with murmuring but with prayer. We should entreat him to maybe remove our burden, maybe give us the strength to bear up underneath it. But we should place everything in our in his hands. Israelites didn't do this; they grumbled, but they didn't pray. Remembering what Yahweh had already done for them—the deliverance, His goodness, His faithfulness—you might think that would have been their first resort. Let's pray, but no. So they complained. That's human nature, but I. Think we need to be very careful about using human nature as the yardstick by which we judge whether something is acceptable or not. It's a pretty shaky yardstick. But I'm not, I'm not talking about occasional complaining, though. I'm talking about a pervasive grumbling spirit. And I'm gonna guess if you think about it, you probably all know somebody who has been inflicted uh, with a grumbling spirit. What are some of the defining characteristics of a grumbling spirit? Number one, At the basis of it, there's a lack of trust in God's goodness and in his power and a lack of submission to his will in the situation that you are in. The opposite spirit is exemplified in Christ, right? Christ, in his first temptation, which took place where? In the wilderness, right? Just like them, he was in the wilderness. Just like them, he didn't have any bread. And Satan himself comes to him to tempt him, says, come on, turn the stones to bread, You remember what Jesus did instead, what he said to there, what he said to Satan? I'm going to tell you in a little bit. When I do, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, Mike brought this whole thing full circle. (laughs) (laughs) Number two, connected with the grumbling spirit, there is a forgetfulness of and an ingratitude for the benefits formerly received from God. Okay? Very conspicuous in the case of these Israelites. Yes, Jehovah, I know that you smote my enemies with miraculous plagues. I know that you saved me via the Passover from death from the angel of death. I know that you delivered us from Egypt. I know you're part of the Red Sea. But what have you done for us lately? Right? But those with a complaining spirit, we do that same thing today. Right? Geez, honey, I know you said yes when I asked you to marry me, and I know you've raised and born and raised all my kids, and I know that you wash and you cook and you clean and keep my house, but what have you done for me lately? (laughs) Number three, another characteristic of a grumbling spirit is that it seeks to blame God. How dare He have the audacity to treat me this harshly? I is always on itself, or imagined wrongs, and it works hard to make out a case of ill-treatment. I've been so ill-treated by life. I've been, I'm have been i so, so unfair. I don't deserve this. This grumbling spirit would seek to indict the Almighty God in its puny little courtroom and convict him of injustice. And number four, the, compl- the complaining spirit is prone to exaggeration. For complainers, there's never just a little complaint. Food is never just mildly bland at a restaurant it's always the worst thing you ever put in your mouth right a movie a so-so movie isn't just mildly lacking in plot points or perhaps the pacing's a bit slow it's this is the worst piece of direct hollywood's ever spat out just like the israelites can hardly have been better off in egypt than they as they pretended to be they forget what it was like being knee-deep in mud trying to make bricks without straw okay all right enough complaining about complainers notice this. God says in this verse, he says, when I do this for you, I'm going to display my glory. Right? Verse 7, in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord. This means two things. One, yes, as God revealed to the people, yes, there's going to be this special display of his radiant glory. There's going to be this man of miracle. There's going to be this amazing display. But I think even in a greater way, it was a display of God's glory that he fed them that first morning and the next morning and the next morning for 40 years while they wandered in the wilderness, okay, on their way to the promised land. Usually when I think of a demonstration of God's glory, I think of something so out of the ordinary, so big, so amazing, so magnificent, there's a ball of fire in the sky or there's a Shekinah glory pouring out of my pore, something everyone looks at and goes, Whoa, holy, that's, look at the glory of God. It's this bells and whistles and attracts a lot of attention. But you know what God says? God says many times, I will display my glory by providing for your needs day in and day out and showing myself to be a faithful God to you. Can we not say tonight, folks, that we have great confidence in seeing this, that we have seen the glory of the Lord? And I don't want to minimize for a moment the fact that people go through trials and troubles. There are difficult times, maybe that you're going through now, maybe you've gone through in the past, maybe you're going to go through in the future. There's difficult times do you go, that you're going to go through and you experience it personally, but through it all, God has been there for, and he's been good to us, and he's provided. I'm not saying that God is uh, giving us everything on our great big wish list, right? There's places I want to go, I'm not going to get to go. There's place, things I want to have that I'm not going to get to have. I'm not talking about that, I'm talking about God feeding us and clothing us and giving us another day to draw breath on this Earth as a display of His glory. Do you know how long your lifespan is? I'll tell you right now, your lifespan is five minutes. And then every time you take a breath, the clock resets. That's what you have. And the nearest I can tell, God's been good to everyone in this room. I don't see a single I don't see a single unclothed person in this room. OK uh, Did you eat today? Did everybody eat? Raise your hand if you ate today. Okay. Did you eat three meals today? Anybody? Oh, okay. That's a testimony that God's been good to us, that we have clothes on our back and food in our belly. Thank you, Jesus. In verse 9, then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. He says, Israel, I'm going to provide for your needs. You want meat to eat? I'll bring it to you. You want bread? I'll bring it to you. And I'm sure Israel is wondering, looking around, how-, how is this going to happen? Are we going to DoorDash from Egypt? Are we, get- are we getting Uber Eats? I don't know. God, how are you going to do this? You know what God says? Don't worry about it. I have stores of treasures and gifts for you that you know nothing about i have provisions figured out before i brought you here i knew how you were, how i was going to take care of you look at th- verse 13 it is wonderful verse 13 that evening quail came up and covered the camp and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp when the dew was gone thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor so you have two kinds of miraculous food coming to israel okay you have one of these is quail. And all these quail just show up. Tons of quail. They, so many it says that they cover. Now we're talking about two or three quail. They covered the camp, it says. All these quail come down and dive bomb the camp and lay down there, and everyone picks them up. Fry them up, eat them in a pan. I don't eat a lot of quail. I do eat a lot of rough grouse. I hunt rough grouse. Uh, I'm sorry, what you New Englanders would call partridge. Um, and they're good eating. Uh, By the way, the quail was not a regularly occurring event. The quail sort of happened occasionally, not like the manna. The manna was an everyday. Well, it's not every everyday. We're going to see in a second. It was six days, not seven. And it says that it was a small, round substance as fine as frost on the ground, right? It was small. It was round. It was fine. So it wasn't wasn't easy to pick up. You had to go out and gather. It had to be carefully sort of swept up and I'll skip ahead, Uh, verse 31 better describes this. It says, it was like coriander seed. Okay, So it's about the the size of a sesame seed, Okay, scattered all across the ground. And it says it was sweet like honey, and it was the color of bedellium, which is like a pearl-like color. And they either baked it, and they boiled it. So Jewish legend tells us, Jewish legends tells us what the manna tasted like. It says it tasted like whatever you wanted it to taste like. It's not in the Bible, but that's what, the old, that's what the, uh, some of the uh, old uh, rabbis in the town would say. Wouldn't that be amazing? You just sit there and go, mm, I think I want that carne asada breeder today. Ah, and you get to have it. That would be awesome. Could God do that? He absolutely could. Sure. Did he? I don't know. I don't know. But the Bible does actually tell us what the manna tasted like. Numbers chapter 11, verse 8. It says that they ground it on millstones and beat it in the mortar. They cooked it in pans and they made cakes of it, and its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. Okay, think about that: pastry prepared with oil. What does that sound like donuts, <laughs> fried dough? Do you ever think that we served a God so incredibly? He he fed Israel for 40 years with super hyper nutritious donuts. And great God that we serve. So what exactly was this, um, this manna? Verse, verse 14 says, it was fine as frost and ground. So when they went to go gather it, okay, they had to, it was on the ground. They had to stoop, right? They had to bend over, maybe even get down on their knees to collect the manna, okay? And then take it carefully back to their households. I find this fascinating. That God taught Israel through the giving of the manna. How did he teach them? First of all, he taught them, you have to cooperate with my work. God said, this is what I'm going to do. I am going to do what you cannot do. I'm going to rain down bread from heaven. But I'm not just going to drop it in your mouth. I'm not just going to have you like a bunch of baby birds waiting for me to drop manna in your mouth. God says, no, I'm going to put it there and you have to receive it. You have to go. You have to get it. But you can only receive it with a humble heart. Okay, You're going to have to bend down. You're going to have to stoop down. Maybe get down on your knees and sweep up the bread from heaven that I gave to you. He's teaching them to be humble. He says as much in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes through the mouth of the Lord. Does that verse sound familiar to you? you? Remember, Jesus quoted that later in the Gospels, right? Did you know that he was t- that verse was tied to the provision of the manna that God gave? I find it very instructive for you and me. God is saying, it's as if God is saying, Israel, I am going to blow your mind with a miracle. Here's the manna from heaven. Now, I want you to get and gather it up, and it'll feed you for 40 years. But my giving it to you, it's not just about putting food in your belly. It's about developing something in your soul, it's about developing something in your life. Jesus is tempted with the bread in the wilderness. And basically, what does he say to Satan? It's not about the bread. And isn't that how God works in our life? You're hungry. You have a need. You have something that perhaps could be satisfied. Very practical sort of thing. And what does God do? He says, yes, I'll do that. I will meet your practical need, but I want to teach your soul along the way. Will you listen to me as I teach your soul? Friends, how many times has it been that God has tried to get through to us, has tried to teach our soul some practical need, and we close our ears to what he would say to our soul? God is shouting to Israel through the provision of the manna, I don't just care for your belly, I care for your soul. And he cares for your soul as well. I wonder if there's not some people tonight even, that you're at the point of some extremity, you have some real need in your life. and God cares about your need, and I think he wants to meet your need. But It's not just about fixing your problem. It's about revealing who he is to you in a greater way than you've ever known before. It's about building you as a person of faith and trusting in the Lord and making your life for him shine brighter than it ever has before. And if we miss this, if we just say, God, gimme, give gimme, give gimme, give what kind of people are we? Oh, would that we would say, Lord, I rely upon you for your daily sustenance, but would you please touch and teach my soul as well? Verse 15, when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. So they called it manna, which literally translates as, what is this? I think maybe that's why God doesn't call it manna, because he knows what it is. But that's what manna manna means. Manu means, what is this? Because they didn't know, right? They got up in the morning, they looked around, there's this stuff all on the ground, and they're like, man. uh." All right, if you thought you were getting through one sermon with me without one dad joke thrown in there, you do not know me. Um, Verse 16, this is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The children of Israel did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who had gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Again, fascinating, right? How did God want people to gather the manna? You go out and get it for yourself as an individual, maybe as a family. Wouldn't it just be better for me to just pay somebody to go to the manna for me? Can I just, can I just do that? No. There's no manna farming, okay? There's not going to be a manna market. We're not going to be speculating on manna futures, okay? You go out. You go out and get it. Day by day, you get it. And there's no tribal, you know, manna gathering and distribution center, okay? This isn't corporate socialism. It's not even a free market. God says simply this. How am I going to provide for an entire nation? I'm going to provide for them one by one or family by family. And how much did he provide for them? Exactly what they needed. And that's how God provides for us. When Chris and I were first married, I'm talking just like not even six months married, I was working two jobs. She was working three jobs. And uh, things were very, very hectic. And we sat down one night. I'll never forget it. We sat down and we prayed, God, could you simplify our lives a little bit? It's a little crazy with Chris working three jobs. And within one week, through absolutely no fault of her own, she lost all three of her jobs. <laughs> One place burned down, and I forget the other two, but literally, boom. So be careful <laughs> <laughs> what you pray for. But during that time, I'll never forget it. During that time, we had needs. I mean, she lost three jobs. The credit cards started racking up. They started snowballing. We weren't able to pay our bills. But every once in a while, there would be these instances where we would need $1,240 that month and the tax refund would come in, it would be darn near $1,240. And sometimes it was exactly, I mean, I had $512 of electric bill and we'd get a check from somewhere, unexpected places for that exact amount of money. We didn't have the lottery. We didn't have more. We didn't have abundance. We had exactly what we needed. God was so faithful to, to us during those years. Um, it was incredible. Verse 20. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. I love this for a couple of reasons. First of all, God says, Gather it. Use it that day or it's going to spoil. And what did some of them say? Ah, who cares? And what happened? It spoiled. Reminds me of a quote from the great philosopher John Wayne. Life is hard, but it's harder when you're stupid. <laughs> and I think verse 21 is so beautiful. What happens to the manna when the day got hot? It disappeared. I feel like this was God's reinforcement of a work ethic. Again, with the teaching through this gift, right? This work ethic upon Israel. Get out of bed, go get the manna before it gets too hot. Or you're going to lose out, right? God originated this phrase, use it or lose it. That's where this comes from. You can't sleep in. You've got to go out and gather it. There's work to be done. If you don't do it, it's going to vanish. In verse 22. So it was on the sixth day they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, verse 27, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Like I said, life is hard. It's harder when you're stupid. Verse 28, then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why in the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. Isn't so it curious? There are some people who will only learn through personal experience, right? You can tell them as many times as you want to don't touch the hot stove. Don't touch the hot stove. What do they do? They touch the hot stove. People often say, well, experience is the best teacher, or, you know, we learn best from our mistakes. Ask my kids, they'll tell you exactly what I tell them. You can learn from your own mistakes, but it's usually a lot cheaper and a lot easier to learn from other people's mistakes. (laughs) I want to get a little meta just for a second. Why are we studying the Old Testament at all? Why are we even studying Exodus? This is the Old Testament. It has nothing to do with us, right? I used to read the Old Testament, and I used to think, wow, are the Israelites idiots. They had God right there in the cloud, in the fire, speaking to them. Pillar of smoke, ten plagues, parting the Red Sea. And they still made the golden calf. They still turned around to worship Baal. God literally rains down bread from heaven for them. And they complain about it. Oh, is this all we have to eat is manna? What a stubborn, faithless, feckless bunch of idiots. And it wasn't until I'd been saved for many years. been saved for a long time. And I finally understood, I finally got it, why we read the Old Testament. And I finally understood why I was so incredulous of the Israelites with their lack of faith and their turning to idols and their repeated turning away from God. I finally figured out why I was so frustrated reading the Old Testament and reading about them. Because it was me. I finally realized that everything they had done, losing their faith, turning to idols, complaining to God, was what I had done. And I didn't have God over there in a pillar of fire. I got inside me, I had the Holy Spirit indwelling me, and still failed him constantly. So, you want to know why we read the Old Testament? So we can see ourselves in it. Yeah. And hopefully, hopefully, God willing, learn from, from some of their mistakes instead of from ourselves. Hopefully, we can look at David and learn about the painful aftermath of adultery. Right? And maybe stop flirting with our secretary. We can look at Samson and learn not to rely on our own strength. We can look at Jonah and learn not to run away from God. We can look at Cain and learn not to hate our brother. Verse 31. So the people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan, and omer is one-tenth of an ephah. Verse 35 tells us that they ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan, that God provided for them through all the years of their wanderings until they came to the promised land. And I think we could probably stop right here and be like, wow, that's a great, that's a great lesson, Mike. Exodus, Exodus 16, God provide for Israel miraculously. It's good times. Let's go home. But I think that I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't mention one more thing to you. I already mentioned that Jesus spoke about manna, okay? In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 32... Jesus, let me set the scene for you. Jesus, you know, several times had fed multitudes, right, with the loaves and the fishes and multiplying uh, the food. And he had these crowds of people following him around. And on one of those occasions, the people said, wow, this this is great, Jesus. Why don't you just keep doing this every day? And then we don't have to have jobs, and we won't have to worry about anything. You'll be like a bread factory on two legs, and we'll just follow you, and it'll be great. And Jesus wanted to discuss this with them. And so, this is what he said to them in verse 32, John chapter 6, verse 32. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. It's a very interesting statement. Did Moses give them the manna in the wilderness? No, God did. God sent it. But he says, Jesus says, It's God who gives you the true bread from heaven. What does that look like? In the next verse, he says, verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So who is the true bread of God? Jesus. You see what Jesus is saying? Just like God provided manna in the wilderness for the children of Israel, so I have come down from heaven as God's provision for a spiritually starving world. And here's what you and I need to do. We need to take Jesus figuratively as if he were bread and receive him into our inmost being. I'm not being I think, sacrilegious when I say that God is constantly comparing himself to food all the time, right? I'm the bread of life, I'm the, the living water, I'm the vine, you're the, the fruit. I don't know if you thought about it. There's a lot of similarities between how you need to trust Jesus and, and who he is and what he did for you on the cross and between that and the trust that you put in, in eating, right? First of all, number one, you have to be aware of your need. You have to be hungry. You say, Jesus, I come to you and I know that I'm in need. There's, there's a daily hunger that we, that we all have, but sometimes there's that starving literally to death. And there may be some here tonight who are, spiritually, spiritually speaking, are starving to death. And Jesus is here for you to put your trust in, to feed your soul. And if you don't feed your soul in him, you're going to starve to death. So not only do you have to be hungry, but secondly, everyone has to gather it for himself and every day. It has to be each and every day gathered for yourself. Third, I would say that you have to receive Jesus humbly, right? Just like they had to stoop down and get the man and pick it up, the, up off the ground. You can't come to Jesus proud. You can't come to him like, wow, I'm a pretty good catch. You're pretty lucky to have me on your team. Okay? No, you come to him on your knees, literally or figuratively, and... You come with that deep humility that comes with the gratitude of knowing that you don't deserve it, just like Israel didn't deserve the man in the wilderness. Fourth, perhaps most importantly, again, I'm speaking figuratively, you have to eat it, right? You have to take this gift that Jesus has and you have to take it deep inside you and say, Jesus, this is what I want. Bread from heaven comes down. He died on a cross to pay the penalty for sin. And now he says, Will you eat of it? Will you take it into your inmost being? God hasn't called you to be a food critic, okay? He has called you to eat. He hasn't called you to run a restaurant and serve bread. You could theoretically serve other people bread all day long and still starve to death yourself. Sitting in the same room as food doesn't get you fed. Just like sitting in a garage and drinking gasoline doesn't make you a car. Just like sitting in church every Sunday doesn't turn you into a Christian. That verse that talks about, right? The man who looks in the mirror and sees his reflection and then does nothing about it. His hair's a mess and his tie's crooked and he looks at himself in the mirror and then he walks away and makes no changes. People do that in church every Sunday. You need to eat that food. You need to chew it. You need to digest it. And it's not about quantity. It's about quality. You guys ever see the movie Ratatouille? Right in the beginning and Remy, the rat, and he's got the food and he's, he's, he's smelling it. and He's trying to get the, and he looks over and his slovenly brother is just, shoving his baseball And Remy's like, don't just hork it down. I would much prefer, rather than you reading eight chapters in your Bible today, I would much prefer you to read one verse right. and meditate on it and pray about it and think about it and wrestle with it and chew on it. It's about quality. It's not about quantity. And like I said, he didn't call you to be food critic. okay? He didn't call you to evaluate who's the best chef ever. He didn't call you to say, well, I kind of like the bread that Steve serves more than the bread that Jeremy serves, or more than the bread that Mike serves. Some people want to go to a church where the pastor does, adds all sorts of flowery stuff, right? There's all sorts of garnishes on the gospel. I want to go to that guy's church. The, pra- the plates look so pretty. You see, the, you see the microgreens? I mean, there's no meat there. There's no, there's no nutritional value. And Satan is the great counterfeiter, Right? Bread and water, all you need. But what does the world offer you? Mountain Dew and Twinkies. It looks, so, it looks so much, let's face it, it looks better, doesn't it? It looks exciting. It's not boring and plain like bread and water. It's green. It's got bubbles. And you know what it's going to do? It's going to rot you from the inside out, and the whole time you're going to think you're being fed. It's going to kill you so slowly So why do you do it? Why do you eat and drink it? You know why? Because the world's got an incredible marketing department. Why should you have a boring, stale marriage, staying and sleeping with the same woman for 50 years when you can have a different woman every night? Go pick it until you dump her, and then you get another one. Why should you have a a boring, stable marriage when you can have exciting things like... Pornography and extramarital affairs and STDs. (laughs) Children born out of wedlock. Why stick with what God created? Boring, one man, one woman. Right? When you can be bi, trans, non-binary. There's all these exciting options to choose from now. Why should you work hard every day at a job to get money? Why not just scam the government? Why not just lie, cheat, and steal? So much easier. What's the worst that's going to happen? Five to ten years? You'll probably just get probation. How how do you feel when you eat fast food? I know how I feel when I eat fast food. Because I do it. Eat that Big Mac and an hour later, you know how I feel? Gross. So gross. Think about all the things that this world offers and all of the unhealthy options. All of the spiritual junk food. And think about how you feel after you consume it. Why do you have to go out every day? Why can't he just provide it for us like once a week? Why, Why did Jesus teach us to break, give us gives us day our daily bread? Jesus is saying that in prayer, you need a moment-by-moment dependent relationship on God, okay? Never forget, this is, uh, so I'm originally from the Midwest, in case you didn't know, I'm originally from Milwaukee. And uh, maybe 10 years ago, I got lost in Maine middle-of-nowhere Maine. Now, apologies to anyone here, but Maine people are a different breed, especially from somebody from the Midwest, okay? There's a reason Stephen King sets his stories in Maine. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. (laughs) But I do. I get lost. I am middle-of-nowhere Maine. And so, sure enough, I come, you know, I pull over. There's a guy on the side of the road. I pull over. like, hey, I'm trying to get back to Portsmouth. Of course, what does he say? Oh, you can't get there from here, (laughs) I said okay. I said, well, "What's the best way to get back to Portsmouth?" He says, "By cod, imagine." <laughs> okay. How about this road? Where does this road go? It doesn't go anywhere. It stays right where it is. <laughs> okay. Let's pretend for a second that you're actually trying to be helpful to me. Okay. If you were me, how'd you get back to Portsmouth? Well. You're going to drive down the road about two C's, and then, I'm like, whoa, 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 I'm going to drive how far? Two C's. I'm like, how far is two C's? He says, well, you're going to drive as far as you can see once. Then you're going to do that again. That'll be two C's. And then you're going to see a, a farmhouse with a dog on the front porch. You take a left. I'm like, okay. I said, whoa, 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 What if the dog's not on the front porch? He says, you're still going to take a left. <laughs> oh. So... Here's how, how do I put this? Imagine you're out driving, okay? And you are hopelessly lost. And you finally find somebody. You roll down the window and you tell him, and you say, this is what I'm trying to get. And he says, oh, you, you don't even know how lost you are. He's like, I, you're so lost. I mean, even if I gave you directions, you'd probably forget them. And you probably wouldn't be able to follow them. It's so hard to get from, it's so complicated. I can't even, you know, I'll tell you what. And he gets in the car with you. He says, I'll just, I'll just, I'll take you there. I'll just show, I'll I'll take you how to get there, right? In other words, the remedy for your lostness is not a set of directions. The remedy for your lostness is having somebody, a relationship with somebody right there next to you in the co-pilot seat who's been there and knows the twists and turns and can get you out to where you need to be, sitting with you, taking you through each crossroad when you don't know which way to turn. So, too, when we get into a wilderness experience, I think sometimes we think we just need some kind of saving miracle. We just need, oh, Lord, I had an unbelievable Oh, the day today I had, you don't even, oh, I can't even start, God. I just, I need to feel stronger. I need to have more fortitude. I need to have a little more peace. Could you just, like, give it to me? Could you just kind of zap me? Can just give me, you know, what I need? That's not what you need. What you need in a wilderness experience, see, like, a wilderness experience is a situation where, All your other sources of sustenance and security and safety have dried up, okay? Everything else that could help you has shriveled and blown away in the desert. And what you need in a wilderness experience is not to go to God simply for your needs, but to go to God as the thing that you need, as the one that you need. You never know how clear and how deep and how incredibly wonderful and refreshing his well is until your other wells have dried up. You don't realize that God is all you need until God is all you have. I'm going to say that again. You don't realize that God is all you need until God is all you have. And that's the key that makes a wilderness experience a wilderness experience, is that your hope and your safety and the things that you rely on are being taken away. And you go back to God and you say, give him back. And maybe he will, maybe he won't. But here's the secret of getting the manna. The secret of getting the manna is to get a relationship not go to God simply to get your needs met, but to go to him as the thing that you need. It was a great hymn. It's a great hymn, and it says, it goes like this, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love in every grace. More Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request. And so by love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue this worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. One of the ways that God does this is through the church, right? Imagine somebody comes to church and they say, "Wow, this is great! I'm, 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 I'm Pastor Jeremy. I'm hearing these things. I'm hearing these sermons, and they're great. They're helping me really analyze myself and figure myself out. They're giving me some hope." And uh, so, what do they do every Sunday? They come in and they they listen and they write it down. They take notes and they go home and they think about it and they come back the next Sunday. But you know how it is. You're busy. And you don't really want to get to know anybody. And besides that, you're a New Englander, right? Your faith is a very private thing. You don't want anybody nosing about it in your personal life. And so you don't talk about it, and you don't connect with the people here, and you're going to die in the wilderness because the manna is distributed through the community. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Jeremy has had people come up to him and say, Pastor, that was you know, you made this really good point in the sermon. It really touched me. But I, just, I need a little help working out the details. Can you sort of tell me? I need to know how to apply this in my life. And you know how you work it out? You get together with people that are on the same journey as you are, and you talk about it, and you beat it into each other's heads, and you, you chew on it, and you accept each other when you fall, and you support each other, and you admonish each other, and you think it out, and you work it out. That's how it happens. You're going to die in the wilderness unless you're willing to get involved in deep community with people. And one more thing you got to know is that this is a process. We, don't, we wish that it wasn't, but it is. In that process of just living in this world, inevitably, you're going to have wilderness experiences. Life is a wilderness experience to some degree. And some places are drier than others. But in that wilderness, God gives you a provision. Even in the worst circumstances, there can be a place of sweetness and growth and sustenance there. But you have to go get it, right? You have to go gather. The one thing you have to know is that you're going to get it, but it's a test. That's what, that's, we see that in verse 4. I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them. I will prove them and see whether they will follow my directions. And some of them didn't, right? Some of them left it rot overnight. They kept it too long. Some of them didn't go out and gather it during the day. They went out on the seventh day and it wasn't there. Why are there rules? Why are there rules about the manna? God says, so that I may prove them, just like that armor, just like in the garden. God gave them a free gift every tree in the garden coupled with this positive precept but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you should not eat that he might prove our first parents that he might test them whether they would obey him or not so now he proves he proved the obedience of the Israelites right by a definite positive command don't gather more than you're supposed to don't keep it overnight but why god it's a free gift why can't I do whatever I want with it? He gives them precepts and he gives us precepts, okay? To prove them. With blessing, duty always goes hand in hand. To every gift, God attaches some law of direction for us and how to use it. Because we don't know, we screw it up, even with the best gifts, right? So he gives us gifts. He gives you the gift of marriage and then he attaches rules. One marry one person, not six. <laughs> He gives you the gift of intimacy in marriage, but he puts rules around it: only inside the marriage bed, only stop doing it for you know short periods interrupted devoted to prayer. He gives spiritual gifts, but he gives rules with them. Don't speak in tongues if there's no there to interpret the tongue. Okay, with blessing, duty always goes hand in hand, and that's why he tests us. That's why he proves us. Think about it, right? To get into UNH, to get into any college, you got to pass a test, right? You got to pass. You get high SAT scores. Right? I, when I went to law school. I, got, I had to pass my LSATs, okay? And that gets you in. And then once you're there, once you're in college, once you're at university, every week they give you a test to get rid of you, right? If you start getting Fs, you start getting Fs, you're gone. In other words, the purpose of the educational test that they give you is to either qualify you or disqualify you. You pass the test, you're qualified. If you don't pass the test, you're disqualified. Why? All of us probably know or have seen or certainly have seen on television people that have essentially had everything just given to them, just had a soft life and everything, handed to them on a silver platter, never had to work a day in their lives, had everything gifted to them. I immediately I am thinking of the real housewives of whatever. I've never actually watched the show, but I've seen enough clips or whatever to know to get a pretty good sense of and when you live that kind of life, what kind of character? does that develop? Again, I've only seen the clips of the Real Housewives. Not anything I'd like to see one of my sons married to. Okay? And then when, when those types of people have, who've had you know life handed to them, when the first adversity comes, they fold. There's no character. There's no depth. They're shallow people. And I'm, I'm, I get it. I get that I'm overgeneralizing here. Okay? But you know people that fit this mold. And so when, when we need something, when we need to develop, when I say, God... Give me more patience. He doesn't just go, and give me more patience. What he does is he gives me opportunities to exercise and learn patience, okay? There's a, uh, there's, a, there's a tree, a plant. It's called a fiddlehead fig tree. And they usually grow outside, but you can also plant them in pots indoors. Problem is, the way you take care of the tree when it's indoors is every once in a while, you're supposed to grab the tree, and you're supposed to shake it. You shake it for a couple of minutes a day. Because when they grow outside, they have the wind buffeting it all over, and it strengthens the tree. But when you put it in a pot, it doesn't do that. So you sort of shake the tree, and that helps the roots go deeper. It helps it to be a stronger tree. And if, you, and if anyone has any fruit trees, how do you make them produce more fruit? you got to prune them. Okay? But... Verse 35 says the Israelites ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. But they failed a ton of times before they reached Canaan. But they still got the manna. So what kind of test is that? It's a different kind of test. He gives them a test. They fail the test. And he patiently and lovingly, over and over and over again through their entire 40 years, he says, you know what? Let's try again tomorrow. Do you know why? Moses knew why. Moses says in the book of Deuteronomy... He looks back at the time of the wilderness, and he says, Know then in your heart that as a father disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you in, discipline you in the desert. You saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries a son all the way until you reach this place. Right? A father tests two. Um, example. Uh, my boys, a lot of them, right? When they get to be about 11 or 12, we start going out in the woods and we start doing stuff. Uh, we go up north. Maybe we go off into a camp, cabin in the wintertime. And I teach him. I teach him how this is how you split wood. This is how you build a fire. This is how you stoke a fire. This is how you ice fish. And so what he's I'm going to do. I'm going to teach you how to split the wood. I'm going to teach you how to stoke the fire. And then tonight, when we go to sleep, it's your job to get up and stoke the fire. Okay? And, and I get up in the morning. And it's freezing in the cabin. I say, why don't you do it? And, the son, and he says, well... I, I didn't want to do it, and I didn't want to go to bed. My sleep bag was warm, and I kind of figured if I didn't do it, you would do it for me, and I didn't, you know, I just figured we went freeze or whatever, and if I didn't do it, and, and what does the father say? Son, it wasn't about having you do it. It wasn't about me doing it for you. It was about, I didn't want you to remain a little child any longer. I wanted you to grow up. I wanted you to mature. I wanted you to become an adult. That's why we're doing this. And so tomorrow... And try it again because a father's tests are different than a professor's tests okay the father doesn't test the qualify the child and when the child fails it doesn't disqualify the child in fact the more your child fails usually the more you feel your heart goes out to him you work even harder to try to teach them to grow and sometimes yeah sometimes the father brings pain into a child's life but it's only enough pain just enough so that they're not going to be disobedient or lie or cheat or steal and cost themselves greater pain down the road the child whom he loves, he disciplines. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Aesop's fables. I love Aesop's fables. I read them all as a child, and I read them to my kids when they're going to, they're going to bed. So there's a particular Aesop's fable. There's a schoolboy, and he steals a, a schoolbook from one of his classmates. And he brings it home to his mother, and instead of chastising him, she pats him on the head and says, what a good boy. And in the course of time, he gets older, and he steals more things, steals things of greater value, and eventually gets caught, and he gets chained, and he gets brought over to the gallows. And while he's up there in the gallows, he sees his mom out in the crowd, weeping and beating her breast, and he begs the executioner. He says, can I just whisper one more word into my mom's ear before I go? He says, sure. So they bring her in, and she leans in close to him, and he leans, and he bites her viciously on the earlobe, just about takes her ear off. And she cries out, and the whole crowd cries out with her, oh, what a wicked boy this is. How could you do this? And he shouts out to the crowd, It's she who is the cause of my ruin. For if when I had stole that schoolmate's book, if she had flogged me, I would never have grown so in wickedness and come to this untimely end. So God disciplines us because he loves us. What does that look like? What does that discipline look like? How do you make a statue? There's a saying, right? How do you make a statue of an elephant? Easy. You just chip away everything that doesn't look like an elephant. So God wants to make a work of art out of you, right? Imagine a huge chunk of granite, Michelangelo's David, right? When you start, you take huge chunks out first. You kind of take large chunks off the stone that you don't need. You take away the big things. You chip away the big stuff. You take away the drugs. You take away the fornication. You take away the big chunks. But then as you get a little closer to that shape, right, you move and you do a smaller chisel. You start chiseling away smaller stuff. Pride, envy, okay? Okay. And eventually you get down to that final shape and it really becomes less chiseling and more polishing at that point. There's a premise that underlies so many people's perception of how this world works. We don't even realize it. It's so deeply ingrained. That premise is, if I live right, my life should go right." right. If I live right, my life should go right. And so when your life goes wrong, you say either number one Something's wrong with me. I must be a failure. Or, number two, you say, I hate God because he's not treating me the way that I deserve to be treated. And I want you to know that if, if that premise is true, I live right, my life will go right. If that premise is true, then every wilderness you ha- experience you have is either going to end up in self-hatred or God-hatred. And if that becomes a sustained theme in your life, it's going to poison your life and you're going to die in the wilderness. Something has to destroy that premise. Something has to destroy it, and that thing is Jesus. Jesus was a perfect man, absolutely great person. One day, right, I mean, God said so. Heaven, God comes down, angel, dove comes down. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit descends on him. He's a man anointed, and he's perfectly godly, perfectly good. And the first thing that happens to him, he goes out to the wilderness. He goes into the wilderness, and the Spirit led him there, and he was obedient. Why? He did it for us. He was living the life that we should have lived, and years later on the cross, he died the death that we should have died. So that, and why? So that you could become, uh, John 1.12 says, why? So that you had the right to become sons and daughters of God. He did that so that when you disobey in the wilderness, you still get the manna. So that underlying premise is wrong, okay? Jesus was the best guy, the best man who ever lived, and he did not have an easy life. You cannot live in this life without having troubles. But when you believe in him, God now relates to you as a father, and when you have those troubles in life, they're neither necessarily because you have failed and certainly not because he has failed you. He's treating you as a child because he loves you and he wants to see you grow and mature and become more like him living that blessed, charmed life where everything is easy and given to you on a plate, that is not evidence that God is blessing you, no matter what Joel Olstein says. (laughs) If I didn't care about my children, if I did not love my boys, I wouldn't care how they grew up. Go ahead, run wild. I don't care. You'll figure it out eventually. You'll learn the hard way. That'll be on your head. But I do love them, and it's because of that that I teach them and I instruct them I, I discipline them, and hopefully I instill discipline in them, right? And there's a difference. Discipline is not just punishment. When you think about the army, the soldiers, they're disciplined. It doesn't mean they're punished. It means they're disciplined. So that one day that they can stand on their own two feet and be independent and strong and capable. God makes it very clear that his desire is not that we stay babes, only drinking the milk of the word, but that we get to that meat. Right, that we get to that, we could grow strong, we can handle the meat of the word and take on it and chew it, digest it. And God gives us that meat, He gives us that manna. He gave us His word, He gave us His son. What happens when you don't eat? Right, you skip a meal, skip two meals, what happens? You get lightheaded, you get weak. Not, I asked for a show of hands before, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands right now. Did you read your Bible today? Did you pray today? Did you go to God in meditation, quietly speaking today? Some of us are spiritually weak because we're not eating every day. We're not going and gathering that manna every day. We're not in the Word. We're not praying. We're not being still and listening to God. You can't eat once a week. You're going to show up and die. I'm going to beat this analogy into the ground just a little bit further. When you take in that Word, when you take in... That bread, it gets broken down, right? Take it in, you eat it, it goes down, and it gets broken up into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces and eventually gets down into like, um, molecules and amino acids and stuff. And at some point, that bread stops being bread. and At some undefinable point, it becomes part of me and builds my muscles. By taking him into us spiritually, by breaking that bread, by drinking that cup, he becomes one with us and we are in him and he is in us. My prayer for you this week is that you'd set the table. That you set some time aside, some quiet time just for you and God and your Bible and you dig in. You don't just nibble. You really dig in and you eat your fill, but also that you savor it. You savor every bite and you chew on it and you meditate on it and you think on it you pray about it and you come away from that meal filling yourself with that word and finding yourself nourished and strengthened and refreshed because he's the bread of life. Let's pray. Father God, Thank you so much for this story, this miraculous story of providing for your people in the wilderness, that they cried out to you and you said, I will provide for you miraculously. I pray that this week, Father, if there are needs in this body, that you would reach out and you would provide for them. But even more than that, Father, whether you meet that particular need or not, I pray that you would feed their soul and that whoever is seeking you, that they would find you, that you would not hide your face from them and that you would satisfy them, Father, that you would fill their bellies and that they would be full and that they would know that you are sufficient, that your grace is sufficient for all their needs. Thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to this message from Great Bay Calvary Church in Dover, New Hampshire. We're so glad you found us. If you want to learn more about our services or need prayer for something going on in your life, come connect with us at greatbaycalvary.com.